This is Women Authors of Achievement Podcast, episode 54, with guest Alisa Kim. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Dario Suvorova, and welcome to the show. First time in the studio, I get to welcome a data scientist. Alisa Kim is the head of data products at Vistia Collective, where she follows her passion for machine learning applications to achieve corporate sustainability goals, upgrading traditional business operations. Previously, Alisa worked at Amazon Web Services as research scientist and was an educator at Humboldt University of Berlin. Today, we speak how Alisa's path to becoming a data scientist was everything but linear. She lived in Hong Kong, built a company where she was selling high-end Chinese tea in Mexico, and reinvented herself in the mid-20s to kickstart her career in data science. Get ready to hear Alisa's unique story and make sure to sign up for our newsletter via the website waa.berlin. Hello, dear Alisa. It's a joy to welcome you here today in the studio. And in fact, you were the very first data scientist I get to welcome. So this is very special. I will cheer to that probably after the recording. In the meantime, let's see how far we get today in our conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Daria. Excited to be the first one, obviously. Alisa, you have been to places and your path to data science has been everything but predictable, but linear. It's, I believe, like you are like a treasure chest uh, full of interesting stories and decisions you've made in your life, which I hope we can dive in today together with you. So can you tell me about how you decided to move to Hong Kong in your early 20s? That seems to be very unusual decision being at that time. I would say it was dictated by my education. So if I, if I go into that detail, I think it will make sense. So I went to the Moscow State University, right? I was, was brought up in Moscow and that was kind of the obvious choice back then. And my faculty was focusing on Asian and African studies. There is this uh, very old faculty of MSU that back in the day in the Soviet time was famous for uh, bringing up translators and spies, apparently, which is obviously not the case nowadays, but still was kind of fun. Uh, and um, I was focusing on Southeast Asia and on Myanmar, right? This is why uh, I get to tell at parties that I speak Burmese and everyone really enjoys this piece of information. Otherwise, it's fairly useless at this point. And Chinese, right? So I've been uh, studying a lot about the Asian economy and the languages and how, you know, these countries are interacting with the rest of the world. But then for my master's, I actually moved on to do something a little bit more business oriented and... Um, I did my master's degree in management and finance. So I really wanted to combine it. So it was obvious that I would go to Asia. And then, you know, if you want to do finance back in the day, it was kind of two obvious options, which is Hong Kong or Singapore. And uh, it just so happened that it was a little bit easier for me uh, somehow to find an internship in Hong Kong, which is usually the opposite case, actually. But uh, I suppose I got lucky. And after my internship, I just got a, a full job offer. And that was my first real job after getting out of the university. So it was kind of a cool combo. And of course, for me, this was a dream come true, you know, to work in Asia, to interact with everything that I've been learning mm -hmm. about for so long. I even got to actually use my Burmese for business, which was <laughs> oh, not wow. not obviously back in the day that it would be possible. How is, how is it doing right now? It is extremely rusty, uh, unfortunately. So I got lucky in the sense that while I was in Hong Kong, Myanmar introduced those democratic changes and suddenly all of our customers wanted to open businesses in Myanmar and have investments there. And I was the perfect person to do that. So I would 
very often find myself to be the only, uh, you know, uh, blonde girl in the airport of Rangoon or Yangon back in the day. But uh, it was a lot of fun, obviously. And you do feel yourself very fulfilled as a specialist, right? But nowadays, they are kind of closing down again, so or closed down already. So there's not much you can really do. So one get to only enjoy some occasional uh, reading uh, of very specific Burmese scriptures. That's I it. see. Well, not bad. But then it's interesting because this was, you know, it could have been like the place you would have stayed and just continued your life there. But something like deep inside triggered you to move. And interestingly enough, what I was just so surprised because when I, you know, when I was speaking to you and I was reading about it, so you were an analyst there, right? And you were leading the analytics department in that boutique company in Hong Kong. But then suddenly you were like, well, let me become an entrepreneur now. And I want to sell high-end Chinese tea in Mexico. And I'm just like, who? what happened there? I, f- I feel that whenever you read the biographies, this is, this is what it looks like, right? So, like people, you know, one day this lady, she sat down and she decided to, you know, be that instead of that. This is almost never, I feel, how that <laughs> happens. You know, there's always this hidden gap in between when the person is psyching out without having any ideas what to do next. Uh, in my case, it was actually all very feelings-based and emotion-based, even uh, in a way, because... Those who work with, you know, especially bigger investment banking companies, mine was maybe not as tough uh, work hours wise, but still, you know, uh, 60 hours is something where you start. And then, uh, you know, there is this famous, if you don't come on Saturday, don't even bother coming on Sunday. So the, you know, the Hong Kong lives by the work hard, play harder rules. And uh, uh, when you're young, is kind of nice. But then at a certain point, you're like, okay, you know, if you want to keep on doing this, keep on doing this particular type of work, you better be absolutely in love with money and, you know, put that on the top of your priority list. And it wasn't actually for me. I kind of valued many other things in life already back then, even though, of course, for me as a young professional, my my salary and the fact that I had this very nice standing, especially among the Hong Kong immigration community, right? It was It was very nice. However, at some point, it's just not worth it, right? If you're becoming gradually unhappy with what you're doing, with what your time gets invested in, um, then, you know, you start looking um, for other options. And uh, actually, I just went for a vacation to, okay. uh, to to Mexico, right? I really loved Indonesia. I was not planning to live at all. I really miss it at this point. This is definitely a place to be. I went to Mexico for vacation and I loved it there, right? Because I found out that Mexico is just like a warmer tastier Russia, like business <laughs> ethics wise and people wise and etc. So I was like, oh my God, I'm home. It's just, you know, it's sunnier. And uh, I just decided to stay there. And after I think I kind of wrapped up my work, I did a little bit of uh, analytics for my company from Mexico, because back in the day, they actually wanted to move in into Latin America or Central America, if you wish. And uh, I worked for them for, for a month and then I wrapped it up and I just spent like, a month vacationing basically. And while vacationing, I was like, okay, you know, I picked a place, but now I need to pick up what to do what here. To do. Wow. And okay. then I was like, okay, you know, let's remember all the lovely business books, you know, we all are reading when we are, you know, early in our jobs. We think that this is where the wisdom lies. And if you haven't read, you know, this 30 must reads that, you know, <laughs> yeah, all know. the professionals online recommended you, then you're probably missing something. So I was like, okay, maybe I should put it into use. And, you know, the, the common opinion seems to be, you know, if you want to be 
dedicating yourself to something. It better be something you really, really love. And I was like, well, I like a lot of things, you know. Very it's, spiritual it's kind moment. Of, yeah, I know, right? And it's 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 really hard to put your money where your mouth is because you're like, okay, am I actually ready to do that every day? Because, you know, I like cookies. I don't want to work with cookies. Yeah, so. but, what, but then it was it. I mean, in the way, it's a nice contrast because you, you've done more, like you said, like basically a hard work, going for the, you know, analytics, going for financial independence, whatever it is in Hong Kong. And here you were like, well, here it can be like my spiritual job, like something I do for the heart in a way. But why specifically, you know, Chinese tea? It wasn't really as much for the heart. Rather, I thought, hey, you know, maybe it's my wonderful opportunity to, to be an entrepreneur because I could also just find a job for hire, right? It, was, it wasn't that hard. Mexico doesn't have super duper strict immigration laws. Like you can get a working visa, you can find a job. It's not a problem, especially with a nice financial experience. But I'm coming from the family of entrepreneurs and uh, I always growing up, I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Just like my mother and father, I'm going to have something of my own. And I thought, hey, you know, this seems to be an okay opportunity. So what shall we do that about? And um, I did, I had several trials. I, I did a little bit of experimentation. And then I thought, you know, actually, Starbucks is uh, just acquired Tivana. They were preparing for IPO. The whole thing about tea was kind of pretty big. Also, Mexico is now always trying to follow United States in its culture. Well, very Wait, often. Which year are we talking about? Boof. That was 2013. Nice. 2013. Okay. But you did your market yeah. research. Well, I can see that. I did. <laughs> I did. And um, I thought, hey, actually, you know, that's kind of a big passion of mine. I had a huge collection of like antique Chinese teapots. I've been traveling around China because it's close to Hong Kong. I knew some plantation owners. I thought, you know, okay, let's give it a go, you know, for a difference. Somebody is going to be importing weird green stuff into Mexico. So that would be interesting. And uh, it was a pretty cool experience. It was extremely tough, obviously. You know, everyone who starts a business, you know, suddenly finds out that when you don't have a structure that you are working for, actually organizing yourself can be a little bit hard. So that was definitely a lot of very good learning points for me. Uh, but what but, do you mean with structure and organizing yourself? Well, you know, you, you get up in the morning, right? There is absolutely nothing that forces you to do anything. There is absolutely no guidebook that says, okay, now do this. You know, particularly today, you have to do ABCD. So you have to sit there and kind of get it together. It's like, okay, so I suppose I need, you know, customers. I suppose I need a website. I suppose I need suppliers. You know, you kind of try to suddenly remember everything you know about doing business but then you know actually connecting this connecting these dots becomes not so trivial so it's i can recommend it to anybody just make sure you don't invest too much of your savings there but even to do this little experiment okay if i had to open i don't know a bakery today what i would do so it, it was a lot of fun because I knew a lot about the product. So it was easy for me to speak about it. I had to learn Spanish on the fly. That was fun as well. But uh, doing business in Mexico was hard and easy at the same time because the, the, the game book was super similar to Russia. So you kind of already knew where the underwater, you know, currents are. Okay. So that was cool. I did many mistakes, obviously, but like you can't read about this. You can't listen to people talking about it in you all honesty. Just do it. You got to go for it. But would you do it again now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I would be smarter now, hopefully, and, and take much more into consideration. But I would not be, I think, as good at my job working for someone even if right. I didn't, you know, really feel it on my skin 
what it's like to be doing it on your own. Because, you know, when we're, for example, working for the company and we have a manager or we're looking at the CEO and we're like, why is this guy, you know, getting all this salary and respect? And he's, oh, my God, so big. Well, you know, because he probably had to make a ton of very tough decisions, you know, and and actually go through the rejection and go through the, you know, risks and uncertainty and everything. So you kind of realize that things are not what they seem when you look at people who are running their businesses. That's so, interesting perspective, right? That was fun. Okay, but what happened to it? Why why did you decide to to switch things around? Very very trivial, right? I it was actually just picking up. I got several really nice big customers in um in most of the Mexican big cities, right? In three uh, main cities. And did I you got, have a team? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Wow. I had I had a very small one. I had three people working with me. It was kind of fun, but actually I had to go home because of my family. So at this point, I think my my parents were like, okay, maybe it's really, really, really time you help us because, you know, there is this big project going on and we need somebody with financial experience that, you know, would be trustworthy. Can you please maybe, you know, take a break from your tea business? And I thought maybe I can do both. Surprise, I couldn't. So uh, several months into that, when I realized that, okay, actually, I'm somehow very happy to be back home because, you know, it's it's a, it's a fun feeling when especially you're living abroad and you probably know all about it as well. When you come back home, all of a sudden you're like you're on easy mode of life and of work because everything around you is familiar. Everything is so much easier. Your family's there. You have your favorite dentist. You have your favorite and hairdresser. <laughs> your favorite food is all there. Suddenly you no longer have to you know build yourself up in a foreign country. It's, it's so it's so easy that it almost gets boring. And then you're like, I need I to know. back to, to go I to know. challenge. Exactly. But well, my uh, my job was challenging enough. So I've been working in financial controlling and I've been doing a lot of operations. For the family company, they were back then in construction and in innovative production of construction parts, if you wish. So it was interesting, but also like like every business in Russia, high stress, high stress, high reward, but still, you know, very, very specific style of it. And um, at some point, because I was very exposed to the people doing very high level business, I was like, okay, so, you know, that's what it looks like fairly high on top. At that point, I sold uh, actually my, my tea business to the uh, to the lady who was working with me from the very beginning, and she's still running it, right? So I think they, they didn't really grow it much. So they're using the same network of customers that um, I, uh, I procured back then. But I, I was looking at everything going around me, and I was like, hey, so, you know, is that what it looks like? Does it like, is there anything else? It's like, doesn't seem to be, you know, that hard. It's stressful. Yes, you need to manage a lot of risks. You need to make decisions and et cetera. But the complexity of the subject was not that high, actually. That's basically how we're step by step getting closer to exactly. the, so. the, the topic of the night, you know. <laughs> indeed, um, so indeed. so they, there was Alisa and then she was just running her business you know, doing the supporting family on like the financial operations side. But then this was not, enough. you know, that was not challenging enough. You were still looking for something else, which I find very interesting because it seems like there was a lot already like new things that you were trying yourself in. True. Um, I also, I, I can definitely, if I had to, you know, be very critical about myself from the side, I would say, hey, you know, Usually we say that people should invest five years into the subject or 10 years or 20, you know, you name it, depending on your level of conservatism, you'll give me a different number. 
But I was somehow always very greedy about my time. It has good sides and very bad sides. Like, for example, my, all my friends know that I'm absolutely awful when it comes to, you know, waiting and being late. I do not tolerate that precisely because I, I feel that, you know, the person's time is super, super valuable. I would never waste it and I would never allow anybody to waste mine. So I think I always was very critical and I would always reevaluate. Okay, so, you know, this is my life. This is another year of my life. What did I invest it in? What did I get out of it? Am I happy? Am I not happy? So I've been always doing like the self-checks which I can easily see how they could drift in, you know, into the constant uh, anxiety. But somehow I kind of kept it in the middle. So it was useful for me to continue growing but and not go too much in the rut, which I, I was kind of always afraid of because I think still back in the day, at least five years you had to spend in one company. If you spent less than five years, you know, oh, something is wrong about you, you know, you're not a good employee or you're not, you're not sticking to your guns or however you name it. And I always thought that I'm not quite behind it, you know. I, I think that if you've, you're not a tree, if you're not happy, move, you know, and ask yourself. I think maybe sometimes we don't ask ourselves, like, am I actually happy? Sometimes we just keep moving. So back then, Moscow was kind of this nice place where a lot of economists will come and scientists would come. And, you know, we have so much technical talent. And I would somehow get more and more exposed to this new technical developments. And then the PRISM app came up. I don't know if you remember it. So they were transforming photos into the different styles of pictures. So I don't know how about you, but this was one of my very first interactions, probably many other people as well, where the neural networks came up and everyone's like, oh my God, these are finally, you know, the neural networks that we heard about some time ago. I mean, if I look now at like super old basic papers that are considered to be, you know, the classics of machine learning, the classics of data science, I'm realizing that, you know, they started appearing when I was finishing my bachelor and just beginning my master's. So that would be already, you know, three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. So this stuff was definitely there. It just never reached me. It never reached me as a, you know, average consumer, right. with not the person who like really dig into it. But then it kind of came onto my radar. And I was like, hmm, interesting. I wonder how this is going to be affecting, you know, our optimization tasks. I wonder how it's going to be affecting, you know, employment, right? Because everyone... I mean, I'm a big sci-fi fan, so obviously you're always like, oh my God, robots taking over everything. You know, you you try to build something at home from little parts. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was very, very curious. And when I started to actually look into this, I realized that, oh my God, this is so complex. I don't know anything about tech. I don't know programming. I did some web development back in the days in the university, which I didn't really connect you know, in any way, the dots yeah. here, right? Which is, it's programming, but it's a very different type. So I was like, wow, I'll never be able to understand that. The people who get it, these are gods, but maybe, maybe I can find I a love way. how excited you were with the complexity <laughs> of it. And that's where you got so passionate about it. Like you, like the challenge got you excited. That's cool. It also like comes from this place of stubbornness, I feel. In the university, I wanted to learn Burmese and it was... I think I was the only person in that group that was there by choice, actually, because usually people with a lower passing grade for the entrance exams would go there. 
So I was the only person that actually chose it. And for the first year, all my teachers were like, why are you here? I was like, well, I was very curious. I love stuff that nobody knows about, you know. But it's, it says a lot about you. And I think we're lucky to have people like you in, in data sciences and like machine learning, because that means you're bringing that different perspective and like curiosity for things. But just like a side note that you were 25 when you felt like you needed to shift in your career and that you were a bit like bored with things you know a lot of people start their career at 25 which I find interesting that you were already like okay my life is very important the decisions I make here let me rethink I'm amazed by how timely you are with those decisions and and early with those realizations like I guess you're ahead of your generation in the way and decisions you've made and and went for I suppose I had very nice opportunities that were that were in front of me and I made use of them, right? So you need to have both components. I'm also pretty sure it's not my last. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll have another moment. As a fan of life, lifelong learning, I think we all should be not afraid of asking ourselves this question because I think the usual setup, and I also felt the same as like, oh my God, I like invested five years of my life into this. Am I really going to change the field? Oh my God, I'm going to go to zero. I feel that nowadays it's even, it gets easier and easier to build on your previous experiences if they're, even if they're not connected. When I was making that choice, it was not straightforward, but I thought, hey, you know, given the fact that I'm 25, maybe I can still pretend that I'm just starting my career and people will not judge me too much if I again go to the university. So it was kind of easier. I'm fully aware of the fact that the older you get, the harder it is also because of the perception. But one of the reasons why I feel that Germany was such a good choice is because when I've been doing my research, I could see that people here go to the university around around that age, around Mm -hmm. 25 actually, right? So I feel that Russia and Asia were definitely kind of in the early part of that curve. So I was done with my master's at 21. That's fairly early by American standards or even by British standards. So I still had time, right? So this is very convenient. to play around with all those cool topics. Kind of. But I must admit, I, I was absolutely terrified because I had to take some entrance exams again. And when you are done, you know, there's this old joke about the manager who who could like... Uh, kill the chickens and clean the stables, but could not make decisions. So I was like that person that I can, you know, write a business plan or I can have really tough negotiations, but this test is so hard. I cannot take it. (laughs) But you made it. I mean, you came to Berlin to pursue your PhD and just fully dive into data science, which resulted very well, as we know today. But you also mentioned that you had the chance to reinvent yourself in that process What did you mean by that? So I had to, a German system as it is, and I want to make sure that you know there is a disclaimer there. In general, I feel that the current educational system does not allow you to make these pivots. Almost never you can take a higher degree if you haven't, you know, done a bachelor and master's and everything in the same area. This is a big minus of the current educational, especially state education. So... I had to do a trick and I kind of came to do economics because this is what I could prove from my previous degrees. Mm -hmm. But wonderful, wonderful uh, German universities are very flexible in the set of courses that you get to take. So even though I was officially enrolled as an economist, I could actually do the entire switch towards programming courses, tons and tons of math and econometric, which would be absolutely necessary if you really want to be good at that. So that was pretty cool. 
when I say that I had had a chance to reinvent myself is it's twofold. So first, I found myself to be a student again. And my bachelor student years went not in the most fun way, in the way that I was studying really hard. I was not a perfectionist, but it was very important for me to be to be good at the subject that I liked so mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. So I didn't party. I didn't really explore, you know, any extracurricular activities. Also, you know, the Russian university works in a slightly different way in the sense of that they give you this ton of courses. You can't make any choices with except for, I don't know, one course per year. And you have no time, right? So you are there almost 24-7. And... Um, I regretted it after finishing it because I thought, hey, you know, so many people enjoy their student life. Totally went by, <laughs> you know. You were like, student life? What's that? And yeah, and I was like, well, you know, moving on. Let's not think about the. But then I came to Berlin and I actually had to take master courses, right? So I basically had to take another little master in order to be fully qualified for my PhD degree. So I kind of put it together. Uh, they have the whole concept of fast track there. And uh You know, I was part of them, like I was surrounded by the people my age or even a year or two younger, and they all wanted to party. They all were like, oh my God, I'm in Berlin. That's so much fun. You know, let's go clubbing. Alisa was like, no, I'm not missing this opportunity. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, (laughs) life is smiling at me. This is my chance. (laughs) I went to two parties and I was like, you know what? Maybe, (laughs) maybe actually it's okay. (laughs) Let's go back to our old ways. But I must admit, because I was fairly mature, right, for a student life, I already had so much behind me uh, in life. And I've been, you know, through thick and thin, uh, through different business situations. I actually had the maturity of treat studying and treat the opportunities, social opportunities or academic opportunities or work opportunities that were arising from a totally different perspective, I was so much smarter about the way I invested time. Mm-hmm. I was so much smarter about how I was choosing my courses, you know, worrying or not worrying about my marks, prioritizing different things. It was actually so, so nice because you know how you sometimes we wish that we would wake up one day and we're five again, but we remember everything that we lived through. So now we're super smart, but we're right. in kindergarten. And, you know, this is this is where we shine. I kind of were, was in this situation. So I could take, I could live through the student life, but being much more mature than that. And that was amazing. It's kind of cool. That means that everything that you felt were off, now you could just like fix it and not have any like guilt kind in the of. way. I have no more hangups about this. I was like, okay, I didn't party because I just really don't like to party. Yeah, not fair because enough. I couldn't. Fair enough. I think I would just like redo everything, like all my approach at the university. I would completely like, I would be a different person. I have a feeling. That's that's exactly what, what I did. And I also rethought all my social interactions because I was as all I've always been a little bit of an awkward kid. So I this time I could, hey, actually, I don't care as much anymore what my classmates think about me. And I'm not ashamed anymore at to excelling. Be <laughs> yeah, at, at excelling at certain things. And you know, hell with that. I love the subject. Let me, you know, go and be cool. So it's 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 a little bit like relieving and fixing, you know, the childhood traumas, if you wish. So that <laughs> was super it. useful. But also, I must admit, oh, my God, German math. <laughs> if, if someone would warn me about the complexity of the mathematical courses, I'd, I don't think I would do that, to be honest with you, because that was tough. That was sweat and tears and... 
only time, first time and only time in my life when I actually failed the exam fully was my exam statistics because I just I just couldn't pack it into my head. My uh, my friends who were doing PG in mathematics back then would like condescendingly tell me, you know what, math is like ballet. If you don't do that, you know, from the super young age, you just don't have the brain flexibility to get it. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm the dumbest person on the course. You're like, now I know what you guys are talking about. But as you were like growing and going into data science, where were you envisioning yourself? Uh, did you see yourself in academia or you thought, okay, I really want to be hands-on and I want to go into this Berlin startup scene or corporate scene? Where did you see you would apply like, those learnings after Humboldt University? I had quite a shift here. So I in total spent four years at the uni. I was super fast with my master courses and I was also super fast with my PhD. But when I just came, I must admit, after after work, studying, it's it's hard intellectually, but stress level wise, oh my God, this is vacation. I had two, <laughs> at least two years of vacation time in this sense. I was thinking, oh, this is so nice. I'll just stay in academia. I'll be this sophisticated lady. I'll just get, I really enjoy teaching because I get to I go to develop machine learning course with my professor and I go teach it. It was super rewarding. Loved it. Uh, and um, I thought to myself, oh, you know, this, this is the life, you know, nothing, nothing stressful is ever happening. You know, everything is fine. You can, you know, just enjoy yourself. It gets old, <laughs> as, you, as you can imagine. And also, I think the moment for me uh, was at some point, there were two unpleasant realizations when I started to really get my hands dirty with, you know, all the fancy models and all the most cutting edge data science that there was back in the day. And uh, just just to give you an idea, if we would create the super cutting edge course for advanced students, you know, all the most recent stuff that just got published in in a year, it would be close to obsolete. We had to redo everything. Oh, wow. Actually, already in half a year, that would already be like, well, you know, that's no longer possible. New. There is still so many new solutions, so many new models, so many new concepts coming up. I mean, the speed at which the field develops is unbelievable. So you really need to keep super close tabs on it. And in this sense, spending time in academia helps because this is what you do daily. Interesting. As a law student, I think you, you solve cases from 1910. <laughs> that's like a whole different last, speed, right? last century, <laughs> like this is, this is where you start from. Like that's the only consistency in, in law are the cases. But yeah. Funny enough, that sometimes happens in, in machine learning and in data science because, you know, a lot of academia people will tell you, oh, this is just like super fancy statistics on steroids. So it's, it's math. So sometimes you would actually find solutions that would be developed 200 years ago that mm -hmm. actually are in the very basis of your fancy model happens all the time, yes. most of the time, actually. But my concern was that when I would actually, uh, because I was working with startups uh, during my times in PhD, sometimes they would need some consulting on the team structure, or sometimes they would need a really fancy model. But what I found out is, hey, actually, what we're teaching is not necessarily what gets applied. And that's what company needs. Mm -hmm. Because we can teach students to write master's students to build a super fancy model that would do X, like predict a house price or predict if this product is going to be returned. But the issue is it's not enough at all, right? So for most of the companies to benefit 
from data science, so many other things have to happen. Building the actual model, writing this five lines of code, which is like when you have the data, mm-hmm. that that's as much as it sometimes takes. This is 5% of time, 5% of the solution. It really doesn't matter. So I was growing continuously concerned that all our super duper fancy models I wouldn't be able to find where they're applied. There is Google. Yes, for sure. There are, there is DeepMind, right? So, oh, oh my God, computer is now playing chess, playing mm-hmm. StarCraft, you name it. Yeah, but you know, there are so many businesses around you and none of them are actually using that. They don't need it. It's not really what solves their daily problems. So the visibility of the gap between the super cutting edge data science and what actually is applied in the real world was starting to become way too big to ignore. Yeah. So Th- that's interesting. You mentioned that because you mostly hear people talk already about AI and starting a, star- a startup in like artificial intelligence, and it suddenly solves everything for you. And then you're like, "But guys, can we resolve the basics?" And it's like everyone wants to talk about the fancy solutions. Yeah, that's the that's the issue. But this couldn't be, in my mind, further from the truth. You know, the uh, just for the nomenclature, the usual joke is like, what is the difference between AI and mas- machine learning? If it's PowerPoint, it's AI. If it's Python, then it's machine learning. So all of this is mostly machine learning, right? So AI is kind of a big, nice, fancy wrapper. But the issue is indeed, actually, very limited number of companies can benefit from the neural network telling cats from dogs or telling any other picture from some other picture. So the amount of work that should go around it is is unbelievable. And that's actually kind of jumping through several hoops. What, I, what I'm working with uh, right now is indeed to fix the basics, to make sure that this model is working within the complex structure of mm-hmm. your company, which probably has many legacy solutions already in place that are super old, right? You need to plug it in, right? Because it's not going to be a a person, Mm -hmm. you know, typing things on the computer and then telling you cat or dog, right? You need this to be automated. You need this to be integrated. You need this to be like productionized solution. And it's a whole different story. So explain to me, what do companies need help with today? It depends on the business, right? And again, I'm not talking about the companies that, you know, live for AI or live for machine learning. So there are companies that actually focus on very specific, high-end, super complex data science solution. Let's say they're doing nature language processing, right? So they're, let's say, recognizing speech, right? They do speech to text. There are Mm -hmm. companies like this or or anything else. I'm now talking about absolute majority of other companies that, you know, doing their business daily, doing very important things, you know, the biggest part of the economy. And it's not really clear how exactly that can get integrated. But for example, for a lot of manufacturing companies, prediction of breakage, right? So um, how can you predict when the item that you produced that you manufactured is actually going to be faulty? How can you catch it early in the process? For any retail company, predicting demand is always, always... Mm-hmm pun intended, in demand, or for any any retailer, right? So what is the inventory? How much inventory we need to get? Like, how do we figure out our supply? How do we optimize delivery, right? So our different, uh, our lovely vaults or Ubers and et cetera, they need to do a lot of spatial modeling. So depending on what is the core business, this is probably where you would start. Uh, to my knowledge, for example, the company that I'm currently working for, right, Vestia Collective, for them, one of the biggest questions was like, hey, we have users that are listing their items on our platform. We have no control over price whatsoever. So this kind of can make us or break us. So at the very least, we need to 
anticipate what would be the selling price of this item and advise it to the users. Thus, at least have a little bit of say, what is the mm-hmm. price quality on the platform? This was the number one task for them. So depending on the pain point, companies come to different questions to be answered potentially by data science. So right now you are head of data product at Vestia Collective, as I realized you co- where you combine your love for fashion and uh, data science. And previously you were WS doing research uh, science. And here I have a question to you. What is the difference here? And how can one understand what does data product is? What's your daily job task there? So uh, the difference between data science and data product would be on the um, kind of complexity of the solution. So data science usually takes in data, right? Notoriously, um, 70% of the time of a data scientist goes into preparation, cleaning, cleaning of the data and rearranging it in various uh, useful ways. You have to have nerves for that. Patience, a lot of patience and skills for sure, for sure. And then, you know, you will build the model and you will test the model and then you will bring this model to somebody and you will say, look, it can do this, right? It can predict the price of your house in case you want to sell it, for example, right? This is what a data scientist does. Now we're going to go from like one level extra. And this is actually will bring us to the position that now is even more demand than a data scientist, which is data engineer. So actually, you need someone who will make sure that data will start coming into this model and that what this model outputs will start going somewhere. So you need to take care of the computations that have to run somewhere. Very often it's in the cloud, on AWS, on Google, or Azure. And um, then this number can should go to somebody in the company, right? You're not producing number for a number. Maybe a business person needs to see that. Maybe your supply planner needs to see that. Anybody else? But then it has to arrive to them in some shape and size. So actually making whatever model was created useful is so non-trivial. It actually led to the fact that there was a huge slump in salaries of data scientists. I think it's even still still ongoing. And generally very big disappointment, I feel, in the business about the whole data science gig. It happened, I think it started around three years ago, almost over, I feel. We kind of got better, uh, but uh, there was definitely a moment when everyone was like, oh my God, this is like another 3D printer. So much, so much promise, no output, you know? And the reason was that all the data scientists would be, I made a model and business would be like, what do we do with it now? You know, everyone hired a team of data scientists, data scientists started doing stuff, but then like how exactly make it useful and make, you know, explain to your boss why you hired this very expensive professional. This is something data scientists themselves didn't know. And because this is kind of new, there would be no people who would know exactly how to package it and how to integrate it into everything else that is going on in your business. And this is kind of where we come to data product, right? Because Data science itself is fairly complex, right? You they usually say it's a mixture between the understanding of your industry, some math, some programming, and then, you know, bam, you have, you have data science. But then you need to add engineering to it, right? So you need, you need this to actually work in production normally without breaking, without giving you errors, without halting your entire process. And then you need to explain it to business, right? So you need to 
even before you start, you need to motivate why you want to do that. You need to try and estimate what exactly will this model bring to your company. Because very, very often we're like, oh my God, we can improve accuracy by 1% if we invest half a million dollars. And this yeah. is what it ends up, right? Post factum when you count it. And then I was like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done it. So you need to do the estimation. Is it even worth it, right? Maybe it's not an important task for the company. Maybe it's impossible to reach good performance with your model. Maybe there is no need for optimization. Everyone is fine, you know, the way it is. And just the data scientists would be like, oh, my God, but I can build a model. Just just use it. Just and let me build it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are so many memes about it these days. I but know. then, of course, the business person people are now very, very suspicious. They're like, is it going to work? Is it going to be useful? Do you, like do we understand what's going on? What are the risks, right? Because we also have the notorious issue with data science sometimes being a black box. And if you apply it to something that is affecting human lives without any filter, we're risking, right? There is a model that predicts, for example, your Shufa score, right? Because they're, they are using, let's say not machine learning, but data science. To my knowledge, they're using a regression model, which is rather just basic econometrics, but uh, let's not go there. Or, you know, in the United States, there might be a model that kind of gives the probability of a person committing another crime in case they get released on parole. Oh, wow. Right. And then you really need to understand how this model making the decisions, because if there is a glitch, right, it's better be ethical, right? Exactly. But this is also what blows my mind every time. The amount of models that deal with very, very sensitive subjects is very big nowadays, right? So we're we're already reaching like, well, maybe even in the middle of plateau of productivity for the application of data science. But the problem is the person who's actually building the model, nobody checks what their ethical principles have they checked for, you know, ethical compliance. You know, my favorite question in data science, what have we been optimizing for? Because if we have something fairly complex that, for example, is going to be offering your consumers this or that, right? So Amazon has this notorious recommender system, right? They show you similar products, you keep buying, it's all very nice. But whenever whenever a business is optimizing a certain task and figuring out what's what you will see as a consumer, what you will receive, like, for example, which price you will receive, sometimes price are differentiated. What are they optimizing for? Are they optimizing for your consumer satisfaction or yeah. are they optimizing for profit? That's a very interesting point. And to be honest, just to add here, now that I reflect, now that you've shared all this input, I actually like understand everything, super excited about it. But it also makes sense how important that you are a data scientist because you basically bring to the table the background being entrepreneur. So, you know, as a business owner, what's important, what drives the sales, customer interaction, et cetera, et cetera. You bring back to the table the economist analyst kind of perspective. So you basically bring those topics. And as a head of data product right now, you are able to interact both with the engineers, with the data scientists and with the business owners in a way that this whole ensemble makes sense and kind of orchestrating that you are actually optimizing for the needs of the company. Do people realize that there's a need for someone who are able to bridge all those parties in the company. Do we have programs? Do we have educational facilities that encourage that? Because now that you explain everything, I see that there's a need for such a role or such a person like you. On the money question. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're coming to this. And it's coming not because people realizing, oh my God, we need somebody, but mostly it comes from frustration. Mm. So a lot of companies, so you know, 
Put a like if your company is like it. You have a unit of data scientists, but maybe you don't know what they're doing and you can't like easily connect you know, the activities of your data science team and your business processes. Very good chance that absolute majority with the data science team or kind of a data science team, very often they're bundled together with analytics, is really not clear. So when there is a new maybe COO, CDO, right, data officer that comes in and suddenly realizes that data is just, you know, siloed and disconnected from the rest of the business processes, this is where, you know, the need for the data product person might become evident because you do need to replug, reintegrate your data science team into your business process. And yes, I would actually say that the diversity in my background does allow me to hopefully be as good as I feel <laughs> in reality. Mm-hmm. I am uh, at, at my work because actually understanding the way business thinks and evaluates and what risks there usually that are bothering, understanding what platform, right, or your technical team would be worried about what they need to be taken care of. This is really non-trivial. And this is when you put it all together, suddenly, you know, data starts playing a whole different role in the company. Suddenly, it's clear, okay, you know, our data team is cutting us costs for image recognition, or this or that, and um, they become integrated. And actually, the satisfaction of your data science team will probably increase because suddenly they feel that they're contributing to everything that is happening. And what advice would you give to people making first steps and considering going into data science, data product, and particularly they maybe be are hesitant about it because it sounds so complex and intimidating in a way. Why would you encourage them to tap into it and to explore it? And where should they start? There is no uh, silver bullet. The validity of my answer will depend on whether you're similar to me or not, because all my life I've been ridden with uncertainty. Am I, am I good enough for what I'm doing? Am I, do I even understand? Am I, do I know what I'm doing? Does it make sense? Do I have the right to make decisions in that area? So many people are smarter than me. Maybe I shouldn't even try to go there. So not everyone has those issues, but I certainly do. And I'm sure there are other people that do. So if that is the case, step number one, realize that you will always feel that way. I got a PhD. I still feel inadequate. It did not help at all. I thought it would. It did not. So you will always feel that way, accept it, and just like move on with this understanding that regardless how good you are, you'll you'll feel inadequate. When you did this, just continue doing the steps and teach yourself and learn from others and find the best way to get those skills and get that practice in whatever medium that works for you. So universities nowadays, if the program is nice and they will actually teach you the skills that are applicable in the industry, check for that. It's not always straightforward. can recommend Humboldt University, my alma mater for sure. Then then try this. Ideally, it's always about getting your hands dirty, right? As, as always in coding. So you will need to code if you're a data scientist. If you're coming from computer science, fantastic. This is going to be probably a breeze for you, but you, you're going to have to learn some math to be actually good at it. You can pass by without understanding very, very well what exactly is happening inside your model, but I wouldn't recommend it because this is how, you know, disasters happen. If you're coming from business, it's hardest, but you have your street smarts, you're still going to be fine, but you will need to find a way to learn programming. Funny enough, you know, now that we're, we have, we have this gender factor, I realized something very early on in the university. I think learning programming 
is harder for girls on the later stages for a very specific reason, which uh, I'm not going to generalize, but I think that's definitely a factor very, very often. Girls are not good with rejection. I feel that men in general, they're like, okay, I failed, I try again. I failed, I try again. I think if you were in business, if you were studying, I don't know, philosophy, even mathematics whatsoever, you will not fail as much as you would if you studied programming. Because you can't learn programming without failing every freaking time. Oh my God, so much failure, so much not working code, so much frustration. You need to just understand that this is a different subject with a differently shaped learning curve. And the fact that you will not be good and you will not excel, and it's hard, right? Because for example, you're coming from finance and you were the best on the course because you nailed you know, every formula or whatsoever. And suddenly it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And you're surrounded by tons and tons of boys who's been doing that for years, even before they came to the course. And you're suddenly the worst, or this is how you feel at least. Just, you know, close the eyes and continue going. It gets better. Even if you keep failing, I promise every every time your code doesn't run, this contributes to your process. This is interesting. It's very different emotions that are accompanying you through the process. And it's super hard. I could definitely see that the churn of female students was so much higher than, than male. I'm sure there are many different reasons, but my own experiences, and I've been trying to mentor the students, obviously, uh, you know, also from because, um, yeah, I was the only girl teaching. Yeah. So I tried, you know, to maybe extend a you little bit. You are the role model. It'll, you are the role model we have today. I, and I was hoping so. So I was definitely, you know, extending a little bit more to the girls and trying, you know, to do a little bit more handholding. And it actually helped, I think, in many cases. So my advice is, if you want to, you know, learn the programming, if you want to get into that just accept the fact that you will not feel like you're the best, probably for many, many months. Right. But that's okay. Alisa, and coming back to you, I mean, you said that you always need to kind of reinvent yourself, find new, you know, challenges. So how do we make sure you're not getting bored anytime soon and go into, I don't know, astronomy or, or space tech? I am very much hoping to get bored at some point, right? Because <laughs> this is the bit that usually boosts you, but... I'm fairly lucky with my current position because I have a lot of freedom and uh, it allows me to constantly find new challenges on my own, right? So this is, I'm um, a very unpleasant and a very efficient employee at the same time because I find my own problems. <laughs> you don't even need to, you know, point. I was like, oh my God, this is not working. Let's fix it, right? So this this is actually a good ownership skill that I'm getting from entrepreneurship for sure. And this is where I feel I was at the good place in Amazon, right? Because Mm -hmm. this is one of their core values, ownership. So I'm sure that at some point when I feel that I solved most of the problems and everything is working fantastically well and we already, you know, integrated everything, I might start scratching my head like, "Hmm, you know, where where do I, where do I apply myself further? Space is definitely a, a very big area of interest of mine. But if I had to ask myself again, what is a subject where I would be willing to invest, you know, all my time into and take all the risks and take all the stress, it would have to be education because this is the bit that I miss so much. And uh, again, with a lifelong learning concept that is now becoming more and more important. And I can definitely see how much we're losing this learning skills when we start working. We all have to learn new things, but this toolkit, this habit of learning new things and being okay with not knowing and finding information and structuring new information, it's so much harder for adults, right? We we kind of invent 
invest so much time and and money into teaching this to kids, but we lose it through time. Right. And That's I, true. Fe- I feel that the toolkits for adults are not necessarily there. And again, every time um, when I was learning German, right, I moved, I moved to Germany, I f- took my Beatsfy test. What I really wanted to yell every time I've been going through those study books, I was like, where is all that gamification? Come on, not only kids need gamification. Me as an adult, I lose focus. I get bored. I have so many other things to focus on as an right. adult, right? But that's interesting. Maybe Make this it is, easier. Maybe there's like a startup seat that is planted into your head. And then we were going to have this amazing idea startup by Lisa Kim that solves this issue for all our adults uh, hustleness and distractions and not being able to learn and find new interests so you will be the person who will solve that no who knows who knows <laughs> um Lisa it's actually about time for my very last question which I love to bring up at the end to really understand who is the role model for my guests maybe who do they look up to or who they would just like to highlight in the episode alisa so who would you like to highlight in today's episode as your woman author of achievement it's really hard to pick one because i feel that nowadays you do have a lot of, uh, luckily so 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 many options and i felt a little bit obliged of naming a scientist but i decided to go a slightly different way with with my choice And this woman speaks to me because of exactly the issue that I mentioned, right? So the self-doubt, the feeling of inadequacy, the feeling that so many people know better than you and how you can overcome that. So I actually came up with Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez because I feel that she went into the, I think this and maybe math at Cambridge or Oxford, like the American politics and, the <laughs> and this level of mathematics are the areas where not being crushed by an absolute domination of men that are 100% sure that they know better than you and you don't know anything. I do not know how it's survivable, but she managed and she got so good at it. And she showed everybody that you can learn something that you haven't dealt with your entire life and get good and actually represent and teach even the people that know the classic ways, some new approaches. And she is a huge inspiration of a woman that just, you know, took the bet and probably felt inadequate every day. I don't know, though. Maybe she didn't. I would be surprised. And just thriving in her in her position and actually making a change, regardless of the fact that probably 99.9% of people that she might have asked for their opinions would they say, you know, nothing about it. Why are you even going into that area? Right. So that would be... Uh, that would be my choice for today, at least. That's a great one. And I think that's also reflects a bit your story. So it all comes into place perfectly. Alisa, thank you for joining me for today's conversation and sharing your story to becoming a data scientist. I think this was very interesting and it shows that there's no linear path and it's not too late to start exploring new topics. It's not too late to start studying again. There always can be a second, third act And I think that's the exciting part and especially seeing by your own like personal story of how that evolved, but also just sharing about Hong Kong and your time in Mexico and also in Moscow. This was really great getting to know you and the world of data science. So cheers to more women in data science like you are in data product, of course. Absolutely. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.